For many centuries, God's people languished in despair. They were driven off into exile, forced to live far away from home under the governing power of an oppressive foreign ruler, thinking that all was lost. And it was during those long years of exile that the prophets began to speak of one who was coming, one who was going to deliver God's people. And the people waited and waited for centuries until we come to the events outlined for us in the New Testament. And the gospel writers go to great lengths to try to lay out the case that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the one upon whom we have been waiting. He is the answer to those deep longings. He is the promise of God to a despairing people. And so over these weeks, we're looking at examples of Jesus' ministry out of the Gospel of Matthew to try to get a sampling of the ways that Jesus came to fulfill those longings. A few weeks ago, we looked at the calling of the first disciples and how Jesus gathers people with him to join in his movement to make all things new. Last week, we looked at a sampling of Jesus' teachings to get a sense of the power with which he proclaims the Word of God. Next week, we will look at the story of one of the parables that Jesus told and how he changes our view of life in such profound ways. And then the week after that, we will look at the story of Jesus' transfiguration in which his true power and nature is revealed. But today, we look at the story of one of his healings, one of the miracles that he performed and what that tells us about him and how it addresses our deepest needs. So I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. That's the first book in the New Testament, so it's pretty easy to find. Matthew chapter 9, and we will read together verses 1 through 8. I would invite you to follow along with me. We read these words. Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. I wonder if you are familiar with the concept of dog shaming. It's a true thing, trust me. Here's how it works. If your dog misbehaves, You take a photo and a description of the dog's crime and you post it on the internet on the assumption that the dog will be so embarrassed by the negative publicity 
that he or she will turn from their evil ways and be a good boy or a good girl. There is actually a website devoted entirely to this. It's called dogshaming.com. And I brought along a few samples for you today in case you've never seen it. Let me show you a few examples here. This first one is from a dog named Willis. And he confesses, quote, I steal cookies from little kids in strollers and run away. <laughs> in this next one, the convicted pup declares, I ate Granny's passport and now she's stuck in Canada. Hashtag dog shaming. This little guy confesses to his own feelings of inadequacy when he says, they said I wasn't bright, so I ate a light bulb. <laughs> this next dog doesn't even act like he's sorry. He takes pride in his dereliction when he writes, I am a bad dog. I ate the car title two hours before it sold. Now, one of the reasons we love dogs is because they supposedly empathize with us, but apparently this next dog didn't get that memo because he writes, quote, I ate grandma's couch while her father-in-law was dying in the hospital. And then finally, this last convict tries to fake a look of repentance when he confesses. I ate my own poop and then vomited it back up on the kitchen floor. Mom calls that a double whammy. <laughs> Only dog owners could truly appreciate that one. And yes, we did talk about dog poop in church. So. <laughs> All the middle school boys just woke up. So. <laughs> now, there's a curious question behind this, though. Are dogs really capable of feeling guilt? I hear the moans among you. There's some debate, obviously. I mean, these... These mugshots that we just saw, are these dogs actually experiencing inner pangs of a guilty conscience? Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news to you, but most experts on dog behavior say, no, probably not. I know when you look into those big, soft, brown, hypnotic eyes of theirs, you think otherwise, but, but dogs are just responding to behavioral cues from us. And then we, as human beings, project our thoughts and feelings onto the dog and assume, well, this is how we would think, so it must be surely what they are thinking. But that, frankly, says more about us than it does about the dog. Because while you and I can debate whether or not dogs really do feel guilt, there is no debate that you and I certainly do. In fact, guilt may be one of the most universal of all human experiences. To be human is to feel guilt and shame, and today we will use those two words interchangeably. According to one study, the average person spends about five hours every week wrestling with feelings of mild or moderate guilt. Now add to that extreme cases and the number only goes up. We feel guilty about the things we have done and maybe even more importantly we feel guilty about the things we should have done but didn't do. Just last night at the supper table my youngest daughter asked me, so dad how's grandma? And it occurred to me Yet another week has gone by, and I didn't call her. 
because I was too busy looking at Facebook. And the guilt just grows. Now, this reality of guilt is true, I think, on at least two levels that we'll consider this morning. First, it's true at an emotional level. Guilt is a feeling. Notice how often I have used the words feel or feeling just in these last few sentences. This is universal. It doesn't matter what your religious perspective is. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. We all have the emotional experience of feeling guilt. It's not just an idea in our head. It's a, it's a feeling in our guts. Now, understand this. In the right proportion and handled in the right way, that feeling actually has constructive purposes. It's called a conscience, and God gave it to us for a reason. Knowing that I might potentially feel guilty about doing a certain thing might keep me from doing that certain thing and bringing about whatever hard consequences or destruction it might bring. Or, on the other hand, if I feel guilty for something I have done, it might motivate me to make amends and correct the mistake, or at the very least, might serve as motivation for me to not make that mistake again, to try to limit the damage going forward. In fact, if somebody is not capable of feeling that kind of guilt, we refer to that person as a sociopath, and we consider them to be a danger to themselves or to other people. So guilt in the right levels actually is constructive. The problem is that when guilt becomes chronic or when it goes unresolved, as it so often does, it can begin to lead to pretty serious psychological, emotional, and even physical consequences. Guilt is associated with heightened levels of anxiety and depression. Guilt has been linked to insomnia, to loss of appetite, to reduced creativity or productivity at work. Feelings of guilt can lead to fractured relationships because we begin to avoid the people that we have wronged or who have wronged us. And in its most extreme form, feelings of guilt can lead to extreme outcomes such as suicide. And so guilt is a powerful emotion. And whether we want to acknowledge it or not, our behavior is so often driven by emotions that go unspoken. And guilt is, is perhaps one of the most powerful ones. But guilt is true at another level also. It's not just an emotional reality. Guilt is also a spiritual reality. In other words, guilt isn't just something we feel. Guilt is something we are. At our most basic level, we are guilty before God. Regardless of what our emotions may be telling us at any one moment. I know that's not an easy thing to hear, and especially if we're determined that our religion has to always be positive and upbeat, those words may be things that we prefer to ignore. But I think the Bible would have us to understand that this is our most fundamental human problem. We are guilty before God. Romans 3.23 says it plainly, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
If you ask me, that's one of the most important verses. Not the most important, but among the most important verses in the entire Bible because it puts its finger right on the heart of what our basic problem is. Everybody, regardless of religious experience or religious belief, sort of intuitively and even emotionally gets it that something is wrong with the world. Something's broken. Something's broken in the world around us. Something's broken in the world within us. And those words tell us what it is. We have fallen short of the glory of God and we bear the stain of it as a result. It is a condition we have all inherited from that first act of disobedience we read about in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they unlocked the power of sin and disobedience which is now set loose upon the world and that power now holds all of us captive. And so guilt is more than just an intermittent feeling. It is a description of who we are. Now, having said all of that, we can begin to understand a little bit better the historical and spiritual backdrop against which the story we read in Matthew chapter 9 is told. Now, throughout this section of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been traveling around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee where there's this scattering of rural villages. And as he goes, he, he preaches and he teaches and he draws a crowd. And at the beginning of today's passage, we read that after having been away for some time, Jesus gets in a boat and comes back to his home village of Capernaum. Now, just as an aside... Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. But we read in Luke's gospel that after he became an adult and began his ministry, he left Nazareth and took up Capernaum as the base of his operations. And so he's returned now to Capernaum. And, and according to the text, as soon as he arrives back in town, a group of men seek him out. Four men show up carrying a paralyzed friend on a mat. Now, in and of itself, that scene is nothing unusual. By this point, we should be used to Jesus drawing a crowd of the sick and broken. It's happened pretty much at every stop he's made. What makes this event a little bit different, what causes it to stand out, is the way Jesus initially responds. Usually, Jesus will just heal the sick person that is brought to him. But in this case, Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and he says, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, the reason I call that odd is because there's absolutely no indication in the text that that's why the man was brought to Jesus. We don't have any reason to think that he came hoping Jesus would forgive him of his sins. What he probably came for is the same thing every other sick and paralyzed person came for, and that was to be healed of their physical ailments. So it raises the question, why does Jesus begin this encounter differently than the others? Why does the first thing out of his mouth have to do with pronouncing a forgiveness of sin? Well, perhaps not surprisingly, that's the same question that the religious leaders who were present that day wanted to know about. Only they weren't asking that question out of curiosity. They were asking that question out of profound anger. 
Now, we may have a negative view of those religious leaders because of the way we have perceived them over the years, but let's give them this much credit. They took seriously the awe and the glory and the sovereignty and the transcendent otherness of God in a way that perhaps our modern culture has failed to do. They knew what it meant to stand in fear of God, and they knew that only God could forgive sin. So why in the world was this two-bit, uneducated, uncredentialed rabbi from some backwater village daring to claim for himself the power and authority that only God should rightly have? Who in the world did he think he was? This is blasphemy. Well, knowing what they were thinking, Jesus decided to engage them in a discussion. And here we go again. Jesus is the master teacher, not wasting an opportunity to drive home a deeper truth. He began by posing them a question. He asked, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Now, that question presents us with a bit of an interpretive challenge. We've got to think a bit before we answer it, because I think the answer exists at two levels. Which of these things is easier? Which of these things is harder to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, at the level of the story, the answer is fairly obvious. The harder thing to do is to say, get up and walk. And here's why. The pronouncement of forgiveness is a bit subjective. That is to say, there's no way to know on the surface of things whether or not the announcement of those words actually has any real effect. They could just be empty words Jesus speaks, and to the naked eye, there's no way to know in that moment whether or not those words actually affect any real change. Was Jesus just blustering, or was this guy truly forgiven of his sins? Who could know? But I'll tell you what is easier to measure and to validate the statement, get up and walk. Because the answer will be immediately obvious. One of two things is going to happen. Either this guy is going to get up and walk or he's not. And if he gets up and walks, it would seem to validate that the person speaking those words does in fact have authority. Now the way the story is told, the logic in this case is working from what we might call from the greater to the lesser. That is to say, if Jesus' words can be proven to be true and have authority in the greater and more difficult case of healing a paralyzed man, then it stands to reason that his words would also have authority and power in the lesser case of forgiving him of his sin. It's all an effort by Jesus to prove that he does in fact have the authority to say what he has just said. At another level, however, we might wonder what the real answer to the question is. It might not be as obvious as we think. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? See, as modern people, we read this out of a different context than the first readers of Matthew's gospel did. We are the beneficiaries of modern medical science. We have come to a place today where we expect it as our birthright to think that we should always be healed when there's a problem. There should be a pill for every ache. There should be a therapy for every condition, a treatment for every problem. Of course, we know that's false. 
There isn't. But in our minds, we've come to a place where healing and physical recovery is the norm and not the exception. So we half expect the paralyzed man to get up and walk. In the ancient world, they viewed things differently. In those days, getting up and walking, being healed, that was the exception, not the norm. And so to our modern ears, the question might be reversed, and here's why. Because it doesn't matter how advanced our medicine or our technology gets. We are still stuck with this primordial experience of guilt. We still live with this covering of shame. There might be a surgery for our heart condition or a therapy for our diabetes, but there is no pill we can take that will absolve us of the guilt that we all carry around within us. So we are stuck, it seems, living with our shame. Why do you think we drink so much? Why are the anxiety levels among us so high? Why do we distract ourselves with so much useless busyness? Why is there so much suicide? Could it be it's because we live with so much guilt? So again, I ask, which is easier? To say, get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven. Now, to answer that question, it's helpful and useful, I think, to look at the way Matthew has crafted his gospel tale here. I would remind you that none of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, none of them claim to tell us everything Jesus ever said or did. John's gospel very clearly says that there just wasn't room to do that. That means that each of the gospel writers was picking and choosing which stories to tell us, and they were weaving those stories together in a way that most clearly communicated the point they were trying to make. And so we can learn something if we look at the context and the unique environment of each gospel writer. And in this particular case, Matthew chapter 9, the story we just read, is actually the third in a series of three miracles that Jesus performs. And there's a curious progression in the way Matthew strings these together. In the first miracle story, Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, we read that Jesus and his disciples get caught in a windstorm out on the Sea of Galilee as they're traversing back and forth from these various villages that we have spoken about. And the disciples become fearful of their lives. And Jesus wakes up, and I can imagine him holding out his arms, and the text says he rebuked the wind and the waves. And with that word, all became quiet. And so in that story, Jesus demonstrates his power over nature. Immediately following that, we have another miracle story. Jesus, or Matthew rather, tells us that Jesus, upon arriving at their next village, encounters two demon-possessed men. Now, that's an interesting story in and of itself, and some other day we'll explore that. But suffice it to say that these men are so tortured by evil spirits that they can no longer live among polite society, but instead have, have taken up residence among the tombs. They've been outcasts. Their lives are torturous. 
And we read that when Jesus sees these men, the demons begin to cry out in fear of him. And with his spoken word, he cast out the demons. And like that, these men return to their right mind. And so in that story, Jesus demonstrates his power over evil. And then immediately after that, we come to this story, which we have just read and retold. And with this miracle, Jesus not only demonstrates his power over physical illness, even more importantly, Jesus demonstrates his power over guilt and shame. Now, I don't know this for a fact, but I can't help but wonder if there wasn't a little bit of intentionality in the order in which Matthew told us those stories. He builds to a climax. Yes, it's good to know Jesus has power over nature. Yes, it's good to know Jesus has power over evil spirits. But praise God on high, Jesus has power over guilt and shame because that is the most universal effect of our sin and it is the most disastrous consequence of our guilt before God. And but for somebody who can conquer it, woe unto us. And yet with the words that Jesus speaks to this paralyzed man, we have the promise. The promise that Jesus can cure what is most deeply wrong with us. Son, daughter, friend, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Many years ago, in another church in another state, a group in our church got involved in ministry at an area prison. Uh, we were fortunate that, that a member of our church actually served there full-time as the prison chaplain. And so through our connections with him, we were able to gain access on various occasions. And this was a, a maximum security facility. So there were housed here some very dangerous men who had done very awful things. And you might be surprised to hear this, but there was a church inside the walls of that prison. Not a church building, mind you, but a church. A gathering of men who were followers of Jesus. And my friend, the chaplain, was their pastor. And just like I got up and went to my office every day, so did he. It just so happened his was behind barbed wire and steel doors. Well, through those interactions off and on over a few years, I met a man, became acquainted with him. His name, we'll call him A.J., by this point, A.J. was probably, I'm, I'm going to guess, maybe 60 years old. He'd been in prison since he was about 30. A.J. was serving a life sentence for a violent crime he had committed all those years ago. And, and while in theory he was eligible for parole, he also knew that because of some unique circumstances around his case, he would most likely never receive it. So A.J. was well prepared for the fact that he would most likely die behind bars. And yet I have to be honest with you and say A.J. had a sense of peace and contentment about him that now, even now, looking back, I'm envious of. Because 
while he may have been locked up behind bars, he moved and spoke with the freedom that seems to evade so many of us. And here's why A.J. had admitted to his past crimes. He, he made no effort to hide the truth about what he had done. And yet A.J. also had come to know Jesus. And A.J. was convinced in the depths of his soul that because of the mercies of Jesus Christ, he was forgiven. And while he might still have to live out the temporal consequences of that past sin, while he might never see true freedom, he knew, he knew that he was free. He once said to me, he said, I may never get out of this prison, but I have been washed clean. And I no longer bear the stain of what I did. Now here's the thing to understand. A.J. couldn't go back and undo the mistakes of his past. There was, there was absolutely nothing within his power that he could do to make this situation right. But that did not mean that he had to live out his days paralyzed by shame and guilt. Jesus had taken care of that for him. And now, because of the freedom that he found in Jesus, he was a powerful spiritual force within that prison yard. He was mentoring other men, and he was discipling other believers. And in part because of his witness, there was a palpable spiritual presence in a place where you would be least likely to see it. Now, I ask you, how many of us would like to have that kind of freedom? It's the freedom that comes not from getting our act together, but from knowing that we are no longer bound by the power of guilt and shame that wants to keep us locked down and, and paralyzed in spirit. Because that's what guilt and shame does. It paralyzes us. It diminishes our spirit. It closes our minds. It hardens our hearts. And it prevents us from living into the fullness that God has created us to enjoy and to share. And I'm here to tell you today that Satan would love nothing more than to convince us that we are locked into that kind of prison. Because as long as we are, our effectiveness for the kingdom of God will be limited. But the good news is that Jesus sets us free from that. He wants to cut us loose from the chains we drag around, the chains of regret and remorse and disillusionment. He wants to silence all those voices in our ears and in our hearts that tell us we aren't worth anything. How many times have you noticed just when you get ready to take a step forward for the Lord, there's this voice ringing in your head that says, who do you think you are? And suddenly, the mistakes of our past come flashing across the screen of our conscience. What is that? It is nothing more than Satan trying to remind us that we're paralyzed and we're useless. And meanwhile, there stands Jesus with that penetrating look of love in his eyes, gazing upon us and saying those simple words, friend, Your sins are forgiven. 
May it be so. Dear God, may it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your mercies. And we gather today simply to confess our need of them and to acknowledge that your grace is sufficient to meet our needs. Save us from the paralysis of our own guilt and give us the joy that comes from knowing that we have found forgiveness in you. If there be any among us today who, who've never tasted of that freedom, maybe God, maybe this is the moment when they hear you speaking to them. And maybe this is the moment when all of us take up our mats and walk out of this place to serve you in joy. And we make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The story says that when Jesus said, take up your mat and go home, the man did just that. Not impossible to imagine that he could have doubted that and just said, no, no I just think I'll lay here. He could have, but he didn't. He received what God offered, and he took it, and he went out into a new life. The same is true of us. He's offering it to us, and we could say, no, I'm going to stay right here, locked into my paralysis, staying where I am, because at least it's safe. Or we can take up our mat and go home. If you're here this morning and you've never praised or, or, or acknowledged Jesus as Lord and received the gift of forgiveness that is found only in Him, then as we sing here in a moment, I would urge you to step forward. We, we will pray with you and celebrate as you begin that journey. If you need to connect with a church, find a fellowship of other believers who are seeking to understand what it means to live under that umbrella of grace, then we would welcome you in this moment. Anything else you need to share with a brother in Christ, I'll be here. But but the same words are being spoken over all of us. Son, daughter, friend, your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat and go. Let's pray that will happen. Let's stand and worship him together.